the deepest memories I have of any experience in shul are generally the ones I have from my childhood. And of those memories, really actually only a few remain that seem as vivid as when they actually happened to me. For example, I remember all the hiding places in the shul, or at least what passed for a hiding place for a five-year-old. I remember the smell of the books. I remember the way the chazan, the cantor, sung certain things in a particular way. And I vividly remember being sent out of the sanctuary when Yizkor was about to begin, which I suspect is a memory many of you have. Most of the kids would run to the parking lot to play games and run around. I did too. But on my way out as they were closing the sanctuary doors, my curiosity had me trying to caps but a glimpse of what was going to take place inside. I'd stand outside by the door to squint through the small windows and, because I didn't understand why I had to leave. Ever since, I acknowledge a mystery to this moment. And there are a few others in the Jewish calendar that meet or even match this one. There are a few moments throughout the course of the Jewish year, a year that is profoundly rich, that expose our tensions like this one does. Not long ago, I read a small piece by a writer named Yisrael Altman Foyer. It was about his father, who was a rabbi, who in his 50s had been run over by a drunken driver in Midtown Manhattan. And he wrote, my father was very badly damaged, literally upkarism. He was sliced apart. And he was brought to the hospital for joint diseases in Manhattan for seven months in the effort to put him back together. And when his father's friends would come to visit, or his doctors, they would see him with one leg in a Hoffman device and the other suspended, the other leg suspended from the ceiling, just like in a cartoon. And these doctors and friends would gather around his bed and tell him jokes such as, do you know what Zionism is? They would ask. It's when two rich Jews get together and send the third one to Israel. Or this one. The only thing two Jews can agree on is how much their, their friend should give to charity. And he remembers, his father does, when he was being rolled into the operating room. The Jewish doctor, or Dr. Goldschmidt, was there with a bone saw in his hand and he turns to the rabbi before going under anesthesia and says to him, Rabbi, do you want to make hamotzi? For some reason, everyone thought this was funny. But the thing is, when a person is unwell, a modern hospital provides a stream of doctors and specialists to their broken bodies. These are the orthopedic surgeons, the plastic surgeons, the neurologists, the urologists, the infectious disease people. They move in caravans, these medical nomads, and they traipse through the hospital rooms at all hours of the day and night. But Ultiman wrote because he slept at the bed of his father for weeks on end, because he saw this firsthand. Most of the doctors were Jewish. They were children of immigrant parents who had grown up in the Bronx or in Brooklyn, but now called places like Scarsdale and Westchester their home. But by and large, he noted that the nurses were not Jewish. They were mainly Catholic, Filipino. They were tender, dedicated, loving, grave, and very serious. They would confess to his father, even though he was a minister from a different religion. And unlike the Jewish doctors, they never told a joke. It's a very Jewish thing in this. 
After all, I spend not a small amount of time with people who are suffering, the kinds of suffering that are known well to you, illness, setbacks, strife, and death. I have also come to know beyond the compassionate word and a caring heart that sometimes a small gesture of humor spoken in the right moment in the right way can bring comfort to a person in an extraordinary way. And this is because in those moments when everything seems lost to us, in those moments of pain and heartache and loss, we want to believe that as the sun which has set, that it will yet rise again. And this is not to say that everything will come back to me in the way that it was before, but it is to say that some kind of return is possible, that a person's visit, a smile, a small laugh, opens the window for a crack of light to come to us, which if it is true, then it is doubly true for death. Because above all else in that moment, we need to know how to see again, because death blinds us. It is for that reason, I think, that we don't say Yisker every day. It is for that reason, I believe, that the Shiva only lasts for seven days. It is for that reason, I believe, that there's only a certain amount of days that we are obligated to say Kaddish for, even though we feel the message of it every day. The story behind this idea is found in a person that we know very well. After all, this person appears at some of the richest moments of our Jewish lives. This person is at the Pesach Seder and we pour a fifth cup of wine on his arrival. At a Brit Milah, a chair is reserved specifically for him that he can witness another soul being brought into our ancient covenant. The person, of course, is Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet. And the answer explaining this idea is found at the end of his life. When it is his time to leave this earth, as that moment is approaching, he tries to tell his beloved student, Elisha, to let him go. So Elijah says to Elisha, Shvanapo, stay here because God has sent me to go to Bethel. And Elisha says to him, as God and you live, I will not leave you. So they both go down to Bethel. The, the, the disciples of the prophets of Bethel come out to Elisha and they say to him, did you know that God is to take your master, Elijah, today? And Elisha says to them, I know, but be quiet. Then Elijah turns to Elisha and says, stay here because God has now sent me to Jericho. And Elisha says to him, as God and you live, I will come with you. And so they both went to Jericho. And the students of the disciples of the prophets come out to Elisha at Jericho. And they say to him, did you know that God is going to take Elijah from you today? And Elisha says to them, I know, but be quiet. And then Eliyahu, Elijah, says to him, I want you to stay here because God has sent me to the Jordan. And Elisha says to him, I won't leave you because Elisha wasn't prepared to let go of his master, who he considered to be not just his teacher, but his spiritual father. And then pleadingly, finally, Eliyahu, Elijah, says to him, If you see me being taken, it will be granted to you. That is, if Elisha lets go, if Elisha the student stays and watches his teacher Elijah pass on, 
that not only would he be great, but that his greatness would exceed that of Elijah's, which is exactly what Elisha ends up doing. He does find greatness for himself because Eliyahu, Elijah, passes on. But the painful irony is, is that we don't remember Elisha or have a cup at the Seder for him or a chair to beat me up for him. We do for Eliyahu, for Elijah. And I wonder if it is because it is Elijah, Eliyahu, who taught us the message about how to move on from loss. I don't know. But I think about this often. A mother, a father, a spouse, a child, a sibling, a friend. These moments are filled with ambivalence. We try to comfort ourselves with knowing that what has been left in their wake. But I won't lie to myself or to you. To those who have loved, there is no ultimate comfort. Maybe at best the comfort is found in the strength to carry on. Elijah's lesson is both meaningful, but it is also imperfect. A loss suffered once is a loss that is suffered forever. And Judaism's faith is not only in the story of we accomplished by our own hands, but even greater in the story of Judaism is the inspiration that we get from the hands of those who come after us. It is for this reason that we are never reconciled with the deaths of those we love. Our pain inspires us to build and to grow and to continue to carry on their lives forward. It is not resigning ourselves to their passing that is the pulse of our life. Maybe Yiskor is not about acceptance. Maybe it's about strength. But perhaps it is the words of the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay, who says it best of all, she wrote as follows, following the First World War. I am not resigned to the shutting away of loving hearts in the hard ground. So it is, and so it will be, for so it has been, time out of mind. Into the darkness they go, the wise, the lovely, the crowned. With lilies and with laurel they go, but I am not resigned. Down, down into the darkness of the grave, gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, the kind. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. Chag Sameach. Kindly